Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Sober Truth Podcast. And let me just say, I am really excited for today's guest. Um, for one, uh, a week ago, I had no idea that I would have an opportunity to sit down with him. And through the mighty workings of our Heavenly Father, he's made a way for me to meet this gentleman and hear his story. His name is Will Tant. And you may not know his name, um, but he's got an amazing story of a vast, you know, wide range of things that he's done with his life, but he's got a story of what God's done within him and really moved him to a place of surrender and a place of knowing that he has a story to to tell the world to. And um, I think you'll find this gentleman to be one of our most interesting guests because um we won't even have time today to talk about all the different stuff that he's done. So anybody, anyway, uh, here we are with Will Tant. Will, how are you doing today, brother? I'm doing well. Yeah. I, I, um, like you said, you know, a week ago, this wasn't on either of our radars. And so just a joy, uh, to be here, um, and to meet you, to hear more about what you're up to and, um, just have a conversation today. So, amen. Um, so let's just jump right in. So, Right off the rip, you know, um, a, a mutual friend of ours reached out to me and says, you know, um, this guy, Will, I just met. He came and spoke at our church. He has an amazing story. Would you like to talk to him? And he threw in there some of your your past titles. And I was like, absolutely. So I'm just going to say this. Okay, you've been a professional surfer, mm-hmm. a professional model. Um, you went to Columbia University. Then got your master's at Oxford yep. University. Um, you were a host on Fuel TV. Yep. Um, you worked for Ravi Zacharias. Mm-hmm. And you wear a cape on the weekends and <laughs> save people, <laughs> save small children. Um, I, you know, not to embarrass our mutual friend, but he goes, <laughs> and it, I got to say, it made me look you up. He goes, and George, he's a really beautiful man. <laughs> I said, I, what? And, and I had to look it up. You are a beautiful man. Very yeah, handsome. I, I appreciate that. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it, you worked for Nautica? Yeah. So Nautica was one of, um, it was uh, actually the, the story behind that is pretty awesome. But yeah, I was a model for probably off and on for about 10 years. I got into it when I was around 21 and then did it for uh, like a very short season, then got back into it 24, did it for a very short season, and then got back into it again when I was in my 30s. Um, and then I was hired by Nautica, uh, probably my mid, mid to early 30s. And I was uh, kind of a campaign model, so they used my image uh, globally. And it was tied to one of their initiatives where they were really kind of pouring into, they want to tell not just a model's face, but also the story behind the person. Mm. And so it was a little bit different angle to modeling. It was actually mentioning my name, which is, pretty foreign when it comes to models. Yeah. Typically, it's just when you look at a model, it's just their face. But this, they actually tied in the story of my personal story of the ocean, my love for the ocean. But also, um, I put on a, a mo- memorial event uh, for my older brother. And we've been doing it for 20 years in my hometown. Yeah, Tommy so, Tant. Yeah, the Tommy Tant Memorial Surf Classic. And so they really were really interested in that story um, in addition to, you know, to, I guess, um, yeah, the way the way that I looked. The way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, does that feel awkward? Does that feel awkward to say that the way that I looked? It does. It's it's um, it's a very strange uh, experience to be paid for how you look. Mm. Um, there's actually something very objective about it. Yeah. That is very complex to 
to understand. Um, and I think that, you know, I was, I was in the modeling industry. And one thing interesting, there's so many interesting th things about that industry, but one of them is that you, you walk into a room where everyone looks like you. Mm. And so, and then you go in front of a client and you have a book of photos and it's basically like a job interview, but you begin to pick up very early on that even in a room of people who look very similar that most of the population would be like, wow, you're very handsome. You're very beautiful. There's a tremendous amount of insecurity yeah. there too. And so I think there's this sort of, this sort of cultural idea that if it, just because you're good looking, you're beautiful, that you don't have any problems, you don't have any issues. In right. fact, you're a model. And what is a model? A model is someone mm -hmm. who's perfect. Yeah. But in fact, if you've been in the industry, you realize very quickly that uh, there's a sort of a, if you remove the layer there, there's a incredibly complex issues of actually inferiority and, and insecurity yeah. around people who, who, um, yeah, who, who kind of can be in that industry. And that's probably true for a lot of people in a lot of different industries, but it's one of those things that, um, that is, is kind of unique to that particular industry. So, yeah, because it's such a opposite of what a person would think, which is makes it really interesting. There's rooms that I can walk into where everybody looks like me. Yeah. Uh, it's usually county jail, um, <laughs> prison, um, or, you know, AA, NA meetings. And <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, usually those people are insecure as well. So, yeah. We both got that going for us. Yeah. Well, I think human insecurity <laughs> probably touches every soul. Yes. Yes, it absolutely does. Uh, pro surfer. I mean, that is like the coolest title ever. Yeah. I think I just want to be a surfer just to say, like, yeah, I'm a pro surfer. It's just I would walk around hoping people ask me what I did. <laughs> Please ask me what I do for a living. It's like, yes. So really. Yeah. Yeah. I was a professional surfer. Uh, I grew up in, in, in Florida and started surfing in Florida in Flagler Beach and um, and realized pretty quickly I just fell in love with the with surfing and then uh, started to compete and uh, and you know had a had a successful amateur career and then turned professional and and had a, a great uh, professional career I was able to travel the world and and surf all types of waves and and just immerse myself in different cultures and and, and I just had the opportunity to pursue a passion right and so yeah. that's a very important experience I think for a human to experience is that Absolutely. to pursue a passion and then you know and to achieve success at it it's you learn so much about what you can do mm -hmm. and at a young age that's that the, the earlier you learn that in life I think the better because you begin to you know when I had to walk away from my career I was diagnosed with a heart condition I had to eventually walk away from that career one of the hardest decisions I've ever made right. um, because of the cool factor right like mm -hmm. if you know if probably most people when they think about being a professional surfer like yeah i want to be a professional surfer i didn't want to not be a professional surfer right you know right. and so i wrestled with identity and worth mm -hmm. on a scale um when it came to that but um but man i love surfing i still am able to surf today uh, i'll always love surfing um and it's a huge part of, of who i am and it's a, a place i go to to find a tremendous amount of peace and mm -hmm. so yeah yeah do you know jamie Tworsky? yeah Dude, you gotta hook me up, man. Yeah. I've been trying to meet this guy for years. Yeah. We used to compete against each other. And, I uh, figured that you're about the same age, yeah, right? Yeah. So he was in Cocoa Beach, and uh -huh. he was kind of with the the South Florida uh, crew down there. Um, and so I knew Jamie through surfing. Uh, I haven't talked to him in ages, but yeah. So I, yeah, I remember uh, he, competing well, against him. It, to write love on our on our arms is his organization, yeah. and originally Sober Truth Project. Um, I based it off of his organization and. 
this podcast isn't about me, but anyways, what's safe to say, he's been somebody I've really looked up to yeah. and, and been trying to meet for a couple of years. And um, I've had a few people that are like, know him, and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll get it set up. And it just never comes comes to fruition. So then when you came around, I was like, I bet you he knows him too. So yeah, yeah. one of these days, I'll meet Jamie Tversky. <laughs> so, Jamie, if you're watching, dude, call me up, man. Hit me up. Um, no, but that's, yeah, the surfing passion I think that so many people go through life never being passionate about anything and they just learn how to survive. And what, and I just feel like that's such a wasted experience because I, I, I don't know exactly why we're all here. I mean, I have my, my biblical ideas. I have my general ideas. Um, but I certainly know we weren't all created to just live this life of paying bills and then one day dying struggling to survive and then one day dying and not even just be, I know lots of people with money that are completely unfulfilled. And so it's not even that. And so figuring out what you're passionate about, um, is huge to being living a life worth living. I think so. I think amen to that. And it's, I mean, even though it came to an end too early, um, I think there's a beauty in you just, you did get to experience it. Yeah, absolutely, and I and I think it's uh, um, it's something that I'm I'm very grateful for. I also understand, you know, once you when you've experienced hardship in life, right, you begin to become afraid to follow your passion, and so I think the misconception sometimes is, man, like yeah. there's this person who followed his passion. What a tremendously courageous person that person is. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily true. I think that um, anyone who's who's followed it has, you know, there's. We often in our culture, we want to fast forward. Like I'm, I'm doing a house remodel right now. <laughs> and so it's funny because we show the beginning yeah. and the end. And what we don't show is the whole middle process that yeah. happens in order to get there. And I think that's true when it comes to following your passion. It's like, wow, like you have a passion. Now you want to get there. And all of the, the doubts that you're going to experience and the setbacks and all that, those are all a part of the process. So anyone out there who's listening yeah. to this saying, listen, like I just, I just think it is so important and it's so helpful to follow your passion, particularly when it comes to um, where we focus in life and when it comes to um, leading a certain kind of life that's driven. Um, but I think that I still deal with my insecurities today when I sure. think about what's next and, and what I'm passionate about. And, and I understand someone who's reluctant as well Yeah, because it's hard, man. It's hard mm-hmm. to like to pursue your passion and then have it not work out. Well, vulnerability is one of the most challenging things we as humans experience. Yeah. So uh, I met with someone this morning and, and I tried to explain that to them. They were asking me questions about why people in recovery don't change and why they, they, they don't want to trust people. And I said, well, trusting people is possibly one of the hardest things in the world to do if you're somebody that's been continually abused and, and abandoned and, and uh, stabbed in the back and every other thing you can think of. And so you're asking the person to all of a sudden adopt a lifestyle of vulnerability. Now, it just doesn't happen overnight. It's, right. that, whole, it's that whole process thing. So yeah. I get that. But um, so I, I see the model, professional surfer, but then the next thing does not fit into that <laughs> paradigm. Most people think the opposite, but you you went to Columbia and then Oxford University. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dude, yeah. you got it's, some you got some brains on you, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's funny cuz it it doesn't it doesn't fit like you know, there's there's we live in a world of stereotypes, right? And so yep. when it comes to a model, 
obviously there's no brains if you're good looking. Yep. If you're a surfer, you know, you're, you're not intellectual. And so there's, there's these stereotypes that we live in and, um, and, and we can do two things there. We can believe a stereotype and miss the person who's standing in front of us that contradicts that stereotype. And there's another thing we can do is we ourselves can begin to believe stereotypes and that influences yeah. how we shape our understanding. Boom. And so yeah. I think when it comes to stereotypes, we have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my, one of my professors says, you never live, you, you, you never, uh, what, what did he say? Something along the lines of like, when it comes to stereotypes, um, don't live down to them. And so it's like, there's in, in, in general, there's a negative sense, but I think when it comes to Columbia and Oxford, um, I learned from a very young age, largely because I have amazing parents and I had an amazing brother. We lived in a world that I didn't understand, but in the sense of like set goals and try to achieve them. And, and that mindset was instilled in me at a very young age. That was the, the, the world that I lived in. And it was small at that age when I was growing up. It was just that, yeah, you can do that. You want to you wanna do this? All right, we're going to help you do that. And there was never a sense of, well, you can't do that. That was never put in my, on my radar. And so when it came to surfing um, or when it came to Columbia or any of these opportunities, um, I learned at a very young age, if you really focus in life, you can accomplish amazing things. Right. And... And so when it came to Columbia and Oxford, I, through surfing, I developed an ability to focus my mind for a very long period of time by myself. Because when you're training as an athlete, you're in gyms when no one else is in the gym. You're training at your sport when no one else is training at your sport. And you're doing it with no one around. There's no applause. There's no, there's no audience. And so what I did is I was able to just develop that discipline, that self-discipline, and find something that I was passionate about again. And for me, it, it, when it came to academia, I was interested in a lot of different topics, philosophy and religion in particular. And so I chose that topic. And I remember, I remember like, it was probably like my first, um, my first semester at Columbia University, and I was sitting in the at the in the library, and it's a it's an amazing library mm-hmm. in New York City. And I opened a book and I read like read the front and the back and it was a book I had to read and then I closed it and I put it on the table and it said Oxford University Press. And I remember looking at it and I go, I don't know if I could ever go to Oxford University, but I want to put myself in a position that if I wanted to go, I could go. Wow. And so what that meant to me is that I had to do really well at Columbia. And the problem was I had never done that well in academia before then. Really? Yeah, it wasn't like I was as a high school student, I was so distracted by the ocean. Well, how did you get into Columbia? And food. Like that was like my you know, like it was like Yeah, but you had to do pretty good. You got into Columbia. Like a B average. Really? Yeah, yeah. But because of like Columbia has this very unique um like it's it's a it's a uni- It's like basically for people who have taken an untraditional approach to life. Okay. And what they do is they say, listen, we want to bring people like you into the classroom and give you a traditional Ivy League institution experience. We're the only Ivy League institution that does this, and we found it incredibly beneficial for not only for, for you but also for the people in the room because you have life experience. And what a lot of university students don't have is life experience. Right. And so to create an environment where these two people, you know, with this kind of environment where people can interact like that is actually incredibly benefic- beneficial when it comes to an mm-hmm. education. 
yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think that that is um, the direction that education is kind of going in uh, moving forward where people are beginning to see such a value in that where um, it has not been the approach. But, people, you know, I think universities and things are starting to change in the way that they want their students. And because it just works better when you have people that actually have life experience. Yeah. I think that's a powerful thing. Um, so Oxford, that's in England. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. how what was it like being oh, in England? Man. It was amazing. It yeah. was uh, Oxford University is I believe it's the second oldest university in the world. Oh wow! So it goes back to um, eleven hundred or twelve hundred, and that when it was that's when it was founded. Wow. And so you're walking around an institution that has been around for a very long time and they've been taking a very unique approach to education. And so you're and you're living in a legacy of, of academics that is like, you know, you're literally walking in the same classrooms, the same streets, the sitting in the same pubs as some of the greatest intellectual minds we've yeah. seen in human history. And you feel that you feel that in a sense of the pressure to perform you also feel that in the way that Oxford's designed. So when you look at the design of Oxford, when you Google Oxford University, you're going to see these very elaborate buildings. And the reason why they're so built so elaborate is to get you to think big. Mm. Okay. And so they want you. So the whole place is engineered in a way to just to just inspire you to think big. And, and, and really, when it comes to something like we're talking about here, the tradition behind that is a Christian tradition because, you know, at when you look at Oxford University and where it's founded, it was, you know, there's a whole history there of Christian monastic movement that was actually yeah. set up. And when you begin to, you begin to realize that a lot of the names represent that today. Um, but the point there is that the life of the mind is actually a life created, given to us by God. God has yeah. given us an intellect and it, we honor him by cultivating our mind and cultivating our intellect. That's a, that, that is, that is an honorable thing to do. Um, and it's something that we're meant to do as humans, and we flourish when we do that. And so that's kind of at the heart of Oxford University, and you feel that as a student there. Wow. So, yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And which led you to, you know, sort of your path of living out your faith, where um, you're one of the guys that I, I'm a, I've always been a, afraid of because um, people are like, so what do you think of apologetics? And I'm like, well, I try to stay away from them if I can. <laughs> Don't hurt anybody. I don't have to apologize. But um, no, um, apologetics being like that's for the really smart people. I just know Christ crucified and um, and saved my saved my sorry butt. And uh, anyways, yeah, apologetics. Wow. Yeah. So you chose to go apologetics, and you chose to go um, with one of the best. You ended at least you ended up. I, I you worked for a few different places. Um, which I think going to Oxford, going to these universities, how do you make a living with theology? Theology is your, yeah. your major. Um, for one, that's a challenge. Yeah. So first challenge is like, yes, I graduated from these amazing places, but I can't do anything. But um, you went apologetics. Um, tell me a little bit about that journey. And then you land on, you know, you ended up working with Ravi Zacharias in his ministry. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, uh... Yeah, I went to Oxford University actually to study Christian ethics, and that was my primary focus there. And then I studied apologetics alongside that um, at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. And so I did both at the same time. And my interest in apologetics uh, came from 
from from what you're talking about from having from having an interaction with a higher power that demonstrated a tremendous amount of love mm-hmm. in my life that transformed me it literally transformed me in the way that i think about myself and the way i think about other people and 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 it accepted me in a way that i'd never found acceptance before in my life and so that's the heart of why i went into apologetics because i when i went through this sort of time in my life a very like very interesting spiritual journey i began to realize that a i had a lot of misunderstandings about christianity and so when we were talking about prejudices before I had a lot of prejudgments about Christianity that I didn't see it as a viable option in my life. Right. And, and then as I was sort of on the spiritual journey, I began to look into Christianity. And when I was at Columbia, I actually began to really study Christianity from an academic perspective. Hmm. And you wouldn't suspect a place like Columbia University is a great place to study Christianity. <laughs> um, but I couldn't find that to be more opposite of, really? of the fact. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, I, I can go on a couple of different streams here, but just to say uh, there's an incredible amount of evidence to support the Christian worldview. Mm. Um, and and I would just say if there's someone out there who's saying, listen, I, I can't take that step, I would, I would just challenge them on that and say, don't prejudge it yet. Begin to look into the information, begin to look in the, the historical credibility of a book that we probably have at some point had on our shelves and probably never read it. Right. That was my story growing up. Yeah. I never read it. I judged the book, but I never read it. Mm-hmm. And so I think, so when it came to apologetics, I began to realize that I had a lot of misunderstandings. And as I was becoming a Christian, um, which is something that was really resistance, again, I considered myself much more spiritual than religious. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to Christianity, I, I was very reluctant to, to, to sort of accept that label. But what I realized was when I was living in New York City and I began to talk about my faith, there was immediate resistance from people who I was sharing it with. Yeah. And they were, and so what I had to do is I had to learn how to answer these really difficult questions, not because I wanted to prove they're wrong, but because I wanted to get to a point where they would actually begin to consider Christianity and consider and ask who was this person who was named Jesus Christ and what kind of impact has he had on the world and why is that and how does, and so in order to get to, to talk about that, I had to answer certain questions about the problem of evil and suffering, all these sort of different questions that are mm-hmm. basically, we have to remove those questions in order to even begin to do evangelism. Yeah. And so that's why I did it. I got, I was also knocked on my butt and I had my life transformed. Um, so we're very similar in that way. I just found myself in a, in a situation where I wanted to share that with other people and I wanted to get them to a place they could actually consider it. In order to do that, I had to answer questions in order for to get them there. So, well, I think it's you know it's a matter of um, knowing your audience. Yeah. Okay. And so you knew the audience you were going to be mostly trying to lead to the Lord, evangelize, whatever terminology we want to use. Mm-hmm. We're higher thinkers. We're you know philosophical thinkers. We're you know uh, people that came from sort of that ilk and. For me, it's like I know my audience. I work with people with mental health and addiction problems. And if you, you know, you're in addiction, chances are you're you're not necessarily trying to contemplate deeper things. You're trying to find a reason to stay alive another day. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's. I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, apologetics. I just 
have always been one of these uh, super hyperactive. Um, listen, it's just this way. Yeah, right, <laughs> so, right, right. Uh, yeah. Okay, I was lost. Now I'm found. Yeah. You know, that type of. Uh, so, but you ended up with Ravi Zacharias. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that, like, when you first got there, that must have, I mean, he's one of the world's most well known yeah. apologists. Yeah. Um, what was that like? How'd that happen? Yeah. So, um, and for those people who maybe don't know who Robbie Zacharias was, he was one of the, the greatest uh, apologist, apologists in the world. Um, tremendous career for 30 years. And um, yeah. And so, it came about because uh, I, when I went and studied at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, um, you know, they basically would keep their eye on on people who they felt like, okay, wow, so I see a talent in this person, and we want to give them an opportunity because, like you said, there's not a lot of people who are hiring uh, <laughs> people to 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 do apologetics, and so they're the ones of the few people that actually do. And so it was through that organization that I was, you know, ended up being hired by. Uh, Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, um, and I was in the states for about probably about almost a year, nine months, you know, around there. And and I was actually based in the Northeast, and I would you know go on a bunch of different college campuses up there, and we would do evangelism and apologetics. And and then I actually um, they asked me to go back to Oxford and and live in England um, for about a year and a half, and I did that. And then eventually I came over. Um, but we all also know that as much as a tremendous impact that Robbie had in a positive way, um, you know, eventually the truth came out that he also had um, a secret life that had a tremendous impact in a very negative way. And so it was a, it was, it was an honor to be involved in the ministry. Um, and then now there's a sense of man, like I, it's, it's a very difficult um it's a difficult season of life now because of, of the, the, the tremendous impact in a negative sense that, that ultimately, you know, it came out that he had, um, had these really, you know, really dark past that I, I didn't know about. Um, and that, and yeah, so it basically, um, I stopped working for them in December of this past year. So, so let me ask you, does, does something like that where, okay, he does these amazing things and changes many, many people's lives. Then this secrets come out after he's no longer with us. Does that discredit the things he's done? But you must've thought about this. What, what's your answer on that? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's, it's on the one hand, I, I just think it's important to point out that it, it's not necessarily true that, that, you know, there was, um, there was one woman who came forward while he was alive, right? Um, that brought allegations forward, and so that was before I was on the team. So it's not necessarily true that we found out about it after he died. Um, and I think that as the sort of the onion began to get pulled back, there was actually other instances before. Um, and so, just so we have a clear understanding, there, sure. Um, I think that the question that you're asking is: Is there some? Is it all? You know was there something good in what he said? And can we kind of hold to that still? Is that the yeah, question that yeah, you're asking? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think I, there's this book that talks about having a genuine love for someone. And it says this about love. It says, let your love be genuine. It says, 
Cling to what is good and hate what is evil. Cling to what is good and hate what is evil. That is a genuine love. That means to love someone genuinely. And so when we look and we apply that understanding of love to this particular instance, there are things that I want to cling to some the way that he was able to bring to bear the deep, profound truths that the Christian faith have and make it culturally relevant and to lead people to a relationship with God who probably wouldn't have considered. I think that I cling to that. I cling to that in a sense of almost someone running away from me and I'm clinging to it. I'm saying, Lord, I know this is good. I'm having to fight to hold that this is actually good because I also, you call me to condemn what is evil here. And so I think that, that on the one, I want to say yes to that, but with a lot of qualifiers in place, because sure. I think that, that, um, the, the damage and the pain and that have come from, from the part that God does call us to condemn is it's, it's, it's something that we rightly do. As Christians, we're called to live and to be on the side of victims Absolutely, and to, and to yeah, fight for yeah. justice and all of that. And so um, I want to say, yes, yes, there is. There are some amazing things. and I'm clinging to those things. I'm also condemning um, his behaviors and um, and the way that that's impacted victims and the way that it's impacted a lot of my friends who work for the organization yes. um, and. Yeah, so it's kind of, that's my answer to that one. I think, um, you know, I, I've spoke about this on, on this podcast multiple times, and I'm not sure if we have many regular followers yet, but if you are a regular follower, you've heard me talk about this, and um, more or less come to Ravi's defense in the sense that, uh, not defense of his actions or those that he's hurt, but as a, he's, he was just a human being. The mistake that was made is people put him on a pedestal that he didn't deserve. No one deserves to be on a pedestal. We're all just people. And um, obviously, um, if he helped lead you to the Lord and you're questioning whether or not you actually know the Lord, I, I think that's that's an incorrect question. You know, I think um, there is something very real and true about anything that anyone says that leads you to a deeper relationship with the Father, to a deeper understanding of the Father. You can still recognize that value without, it's not like you're championing him as a person anymore. Um, it's the principle that led you closer to the Father that matters. Yeah. Um, and, and recognize if anything, because I think he was the beginning of um, a lot of people's faiths being challenged, and I will throw mine in there, um, with the what was to follow politically, mm -hmm. what was to follow COVID-wise, mm -hmm. um, where so many of us realized that the person we thought highly of did not actually think the way we thought, because they either were or were not or certain political parties. And um, the whole world changed in the last two years where I thought my faith was just about the Father, was just about the kingdom of God and bringing the kingdom of God. And in professional Christian circles, a lot of them, it became about something else. And 
I think uh, a lot of us have had to um, search our souls and our relationship with God to recognize um, what's true, what's not, what's based on on the wrong things. Um, I think Diedrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together says it best when he says that we have to be wary of powerful speakers because powerful speakers will lead us to lead us to themselves. If if a man has a thousand followers and then that man falls away and those thousand followers fall away, then were they ever really followers of King Jesus? And he said this from where concentration camp um, before he was to be killed by the Nazis. So I think there's something to be said for remembering that our relationship was with God. And, and um, men and women of influence can help us or aid us along the way in our journey, but it should never be about them. Yeah, yeah. and I think, and I think um, good apologetics. Um, if, if, I, if I walk out of a room after giving a talk um, and they want to learn more about me rather than learn more about Jesus, I've missed the mark. Yeah. And I think that's, I'm, you know, I've talking about my modeling before. I've I've lived in a world where I've experienced a, a, just a semblance of fame and notoriety, and and I think that um, that you're right. There's a huge responsibility that comes with that, and I think that um, so just to say, like, I think I think as humans, we need we we live in a world where we look to people to inspire us. And we want that, and I think there's something good about that. But there's also, um, you know, when we as as ultimately at the core of our worldview, an understanding of ourselves, mm-hmm. it is about. It's not about us. It's not right. about what we've done in our lives, what we've accomplished. It's not about our ability to clean up our life. It's not about that. It's about the fact that someone else has done that for us, and that that person is the focus of not just our lives when we're on stage, but it's the focus of our lives when no one's around. And that is the transformation. That is the spiritual journey that every single person is invited into through Christianity. And I think that what that does is it allows us to rest as humans because we were never meant to be worshipped. Only one person was. If that person was actually God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think that, that that's... As, as a sort of, when we look at different worldviews and when we think about ourselves and what Christianity has to offer when it comes to fame and where we lay our focus on a daily basis, um, it gives us a tremendous resource to say not to begin to speak about our addictions, begin to speak about where we've fallen short, begin to speak about the parts of our stories that we're not particularly proud about because those we have permission to talk about those things because our acceptance with the one person if he is actually god and if he actually did create us to be in relationship and that's the relationship we're going to be in for the rest of our lives that is the most important relationship and the most important opinion we have to be concerned about and the fact that he accepts us here and now based on faith of who he is it, it allows us to kind of have a transparency and to be honest say hey i'm just a man I'm just a man, and if you want to look in my closet, there's a lot of skeletons, and and 
am I trying to live a life that that reflects the Lord and 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 um, if you were to look into my life in a deep way, I hope you would see that. Um, but at the same time, you know, our eyes are fixed on someone else um, yeah. and trying to put that forward, you know, and say, yeah. you know, it's easy, it's easy to, to, um, and I think we need that as human souls. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I believe that the world is, um, crying out for that where, you know, in the past, I, I don't necessarily think it was as evident as it is now, but I think people are really crying out for authenticity in a deeper way than we ever have um, for many reasons, uh, all, most of which we just mentioned. But across the world, I think people are, are tired of the perfect life being the image of, of what we strive for, and they want something real. Um, let a little something personal out, but I, I've actually became, I became super uh, um, into this Johnny Depp trial with Amber Heard. <laughs> so every day I would tune into it and sort of watch because it was just this, you know, freak show. But it was interesting how Johnny Depp ended up, like all these, he, all these followers came out to support him and, and, and they were asking, why do you think that was? Because he was, he just talked openly about his addiction and how, yeah, I struggle with opiates. I was addicted to Roxy's. I was addicted to this, that. I've struggled with, and he just went on. The, and I think people just loved seeing a famous person just be open and honest. He didn't try to hide it. He's like, yeah, I've struggled with drugs and alcohol my whole life. So I did heroin at, at, I think he said, eight years old for the first time. And so, yeah, I mean... And it just people were, that's what they wanted. They just wanted somebody who's like, just tell us the truth about what's going on with you. Yeah. And and I think we see that more, more and more with a lot of Christians that are coming out and saying how they struggle with their mental health. And yeah. and I think that is, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I yeah. love seeing not people struggle, but people be um, open and honest in a way that others find freedom from. Yeah. Which is part of your story. And let's transition into that. Um you know, my, you know, viewers know me as somebody that's been through all sorts of abuse and addiction and um, the topic, uh, you know, these topics are the part, you know, the point of this show. Um, and your story is is filled with both. Um, today, we're going to sort of focus on the abuse part of it um, and really, you know, what has happened and what how that has transformed your life and what you really hope to see come from this. Um, moving forward. So if you want to just share with us. Yeah. Well, I think uh, just to, to dovetail off the, the statement about truth and it's interesting, right? Cause um, there's a book that was written, you know, two or 3000 years ago that says the truth will set you free. Amen. It doesn't say that freedom's going to set you free. It's the truth. And so I say that because even though I've, from the outside looking in, you could say that I've accomplished a lot in my life. and I've been very successful in certain things I've put my mind to, and I think that's true. But I think that there was a truth behind all of that that I didn't understand, and it was the need for me to be honest about myself and about things that have happened in my past. And, and so, you know, when I was getting into athletics, um, my first coach 
and his wife uh, ended up sexually abusing me for two years. And I was a part of a, an amateur team, and they did, as far as I understand, something very similar to a lot of younger men on that team. And I never talked about that. It took me almost 16 years to speak that truth. And the only reason why I could speak that truth is because I've been set free from this desire to prove that my life had worth and meaning in what I could accomplish in my life. That's where I sought to save myself from the sort of the wound that I had experienced at that age. And so um, it, you know, sexual abuse has had, it's a, it's a very, I spent most of my life not understanding how sexual abuse impacted me, but it took, and I say this, my aim is for me to be able to have a conversation about sexual abuse, to talk about the ramifications it's had in my life, but more importantly is to talk about the healing and the hope yeah. that I've found in the most unexpected place I could have imagined to find it, and that was in becoming a Christian. I did not expect to find healing and hope and freedom in having faith in a person who I never met but made all these profound claims, and if they were actually true, then I had to actually consider what that meant. And so it was in that moment that I was actually, when I became a Christian, I was on my hands and knees, tears, ugly, not not a model moment by <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. Right. But it was one of the most profound moments in my life because it was the first time I felt a deep sense of acceptance. Yes. And it was from that that I began to actually be honest about my past and to begin to say, you know what, this happened to me at a really young age. I actually haven't thought much about it. But for some reason, I feel like I have permission to speak that out into the world and to my close friends at the time and get counseling about it and understand it more. And that came on the other side of, you know, taking a step of faith um, and becoming a Christian. And so it was the truth. It was the truth wow. in so many ways that brought me freedom. And I want to see that truth, that particular truth, and see more people kind of understand like Christianity is probably one of the last places you think you would find healing and hope when it comes to life in general, because we've written it off in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and, and we can look at a lot of Christian leaders and see their moral failure and say, that's another even big barrier. I'm not even going to consider the validity of this, but there's a difference between the, the ideology of something and how that ideology has been used. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a tremendous difference there. And so when I began to sort of understand the truth and then I began to have conversations about being sexually abused at a young age. Um, and I began to experience a tremendous amount of healing in my life. It took a year of counseling every single week yeah. you know, in my life. But I finally got to a place where I began to experience healing um, in a way that I had not experienced in my entire life. And I often thought if I achieved this amount of success, it could bring healing in this area. And it actually never could. It, how old were you when you became a Christian? I became a, it's it's the it's, moment you're talking yeah, about here. What's the when moment? Was, that moment when I was I was probably about thirty, early thirties. Okay, you know? and it's I feel like I've had a couple of moments where I've taken like, but yeah. the real catalyst for me was actually when I was you know I was 
long story short, I had to give something up. It was something I had to give something up that I really loved. Must lose your life in order to find it. Yeah, and it really was that though. I was, I literally had a heart condition, so mm-hmm. I actually had it was my life was on the line, and it was in that moment that I actually, um, that was sort of the the spiritual crux of my journey, and it was in that moment when I found a power that was fighting for me. And understood me in a way that no one understood me in this world and was fighting for me to live. Was fighting for me to live, not because I was successful at being an athlete or a model or academics. It was fighting for me to live, not because my my life found worth and all those things. It's because my life has always had worth. Amen. Amen. And so that was the crux for me. Is that my, here was this, this, this feeling that, no, your life has always had worth. You've always been accepted. You've always been loved. And what that did is it gave me permission to say, you know what? Like, I want to talk about these areas in my life that I've never had the courage to talk about. And I feel like I have enough security to actually begin to have those conversations with myself and with other people. Yeah. Uh, What were you now? So in between that, you know, sexual abuse to then how were your relationships um are you married now yeah, so right. how, how were the, you know relationships before that was it how did the sexual abuse taint your life yeah um and these are, it, it's interesting and, and i think you have to be somewhat careful because i began to learn about how being sexually abused has shaped my life when i was 30 mm-hmm. not when i was 14 not when I was 15, 16, oh. 17, 18, 19, 20, all the way through. I didn't understand. I thought that my abuse was something that happened and I just pushed away. Yeah. And I didn't have to talk about it. Yeah. It didn't have an impact on my life as far as I was aware. You know, and I thought that, well, this happened and none of my friends want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it because I'm ashamed and I'm confused about it. And I feel a sense of, 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 of just shame and confusion and... I think particularly, you know, um, when it comes to how how we as men understand ourselves and how we understand weakness and how we're not supposed to demonstrate that, that had a tremendous silencing effect on my ability to speak yeah. about it as well. Um, and so I think that um, when I look back now, though, and you're, you're, you're hitting on something really important when it comes to relationships. Now, why do you think, why do you think, you asked that question. Why do you think you asked, how is this played out in relationships? Well, for me, I've done a lot of work on myself, and I know my sexual abuse happened when I was 12, and I've seen the impact um, all throughout my life. I also um, put it away um, until I was 43. Yeah. Um, and what had happened was I had been introduced to the woman that would be later become my wife, but, um, I had wonderful people in my life telling me she's the one you guys are meant to be together. It's a God thing. And we dated for months and then I just felt like something was wrong and I ended the relationship and it wasn't until then that I was sitting down leading someone else through 12 steps Mm -hmm. And he was telling me about his sexual, uh, you know, abuse experience. And I'm like explaining to him why it was sexual abuse. And then it was like the Lord just stopped time and said, what about you? 
and that was like this moment of like what and it was in that moment that it opened up like a whole new way of recognizing what it, the impact on the relationships which would eventually you know after going to some counseling and getting an understanding of what was happening i felt like i could be with that woman and we got back together and we've been married for 10 years now but it was it w- would not have happened if i had not recognized what happened to me as sexual abuse which gave me an understanding of how i was viewing relationships and that it needed to change even though i was i mean i, I was a pastor i had been a pastor for five or six years at this point i was sober i was a counselor i, I mean i taking classes on counseling about sexual abuse, yeah. but it wasn't enough to waken me up until yeah. that divine moment. So I ask you because yeah. I know the impact that it can have on relationships and yeah. I wanted to hear yeah. yours. Yeah. Well, I think it's, and it's, I only asked that question because I think for me, I, I, I would have never looked in relationships to see yeah. for signs for sexual abuse. It's like you can look at a lot of different areas of your life for for how this has had ramifications and consequences and played out, but it never dawned on me to look at relationships and look yeah. into that area. And I think that when it comes to how we understand ourselves as humans, there's a lot of different philosophies out there. A pretty common one is one that actually man is meant to live alone, right? So live live a life of isolation, reflect on nature and that sort of thing. Um, we see that put forward in someone like Thoreau. There's also a, a very different, in contrast to that, there's also a very different understanding of humans. And that's the understanding that actually we were meant to be in community. Yeah, We were meant to be in relationships. In fact, when you look at the design of us as humans, we're designed to be in relationship. Absolutely. And that's the biblical understanding. One of the first sentences in Genesis, right, that really caught my eye was one, it said that, Man, is it? I see that Adam is not good to be alone. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I quote that to so many people. Right. <laughs> so what it's saying is that that we're meant to be in a relationship. We're meant to be in community, and and by meant it means that we flourish. We actually right. don't flourish when we're by ourselves in ways. We need people to be able to flourish. And the problem with sexual abuse, right, is it's sexual in nature, meaning that the wound was created in relationships. It was in intimacy that that wound was was manifested itself. Yeah. And so it's in relationship that this often this wound begins to play out. Yeah. And so when I look back on my life, um, I'm single. I'm not single. I'm, I'm a newly engaged man. All right. All right. I'm 45 years old. And so the impact that it's had on my life was one that I actually was not emotionally available when it came to being in relationships for most of my life, I would just shut down in that area because it was tied to things that I didn't want to think about. It was tied to memories that I didn't want to have to reflect on. It was tied to parts of my stories that I thought didn't have, I didn't want to think about, didn't want to talk about. So that silenced me in a way. And, and so I never connected those two as being something that was tied to being sexually abused as a kid. But as I began to learn about sexual abuse, that's when I began to learn, oh, so this is why this, this helps explain why I have a really hard time being emotionally available, emotionally connect. I can connect physically with someone, but I couldn't connect emotionally with someone. Right. 
And so, and so it was really helpful for me to understand that actually this is a wound. It's not how this is meant to be. Right. You're supposed to not only physically connect, but emotionally connect with someone in this area. And so it's, it's been a long process of learning about, okay, this is a consequence of someone who's hurt me in this area of my life, but I'm also meant for this relationship. I'm, I'm supposed, this is a good thing. It's part of the design of, of how I'm designed to be is be in relationship. And so I've, I've had to learn, you know, how to build trust yeah. again when it comes to, to this particular area of life. Um, and I think on the flip side of that, outside of relationship, I think even when I look at my drive as an athlete or my drive in academics or anything I put my mind to, I'm an incredibly driven person. Um, and I mean that, and I, I, I find it a very easy thing for me to focus my mind and isolate myself. Yeah. But you think about that, I started that when I was at a very young age, when I was becoming pursuing professional athletics. And I say that because it was a very safe space for me. Yeah to be able to to say I can go and do this alone and I can put my mind to it and it's somewhat of an escape yeah. from what's happened. And so while I've been able to achieve a lot in my life, there's also it even the things that I've achieved have been somewhat motivated as a protectionism. Yeah. To be able to protect myself and to create a world where I'm not susceptible to this kind of thing again. Absolutely. You know, um, know your numbing is, is so important. It's like, what is it that we utilize to numb ourselves? Um, and, you know, when I look at, rec I have this phrase of recovery is for everyone. And part of that is based on so many people have wounds that they're running from and they've learned how to numb themselves in ways that are socially acceptable. Yet it's no different than the person who's doing heroin or, or alcohol. It's just socially acceptable. They can be workaholics, they can, which then leads them to avoid their children and, and, you know, deprive them of the love and affection that they need. But, hey, it's socially acceptable to want to be yeah. a success. Mm -hmm. It's socially acceptable to want to be a professional athlete. It's like certain things still come birthed out of that wicked place. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the enemy, you know, is so uh, unbelievable that he's been doing for 2,000 years is uh, just the whole idea of planting seeds mm -hmm. and then stepping away and letting it just do its own thing. Sexual abuse was a finite moment <clears throat> in time that happened that was demonic and evil but it itself didn't you know no longer needed a demonic presence to carry out demonic things in our lives going forward it's like in that moment was it something that was absolutely like not from god and demonic yeah most likely right but it led to all these other things it's like the gift that keeps giving it just alters and changes a person in so many ways where what you said about connection, <clears throat> I have this thing where the opposite of addiction is connection, okay? So when we understand that trauma um, of some sort leads to a loss of connection or the loss of ability to connect with others, sexual abuse, mm -hmm. trauma, um, we can begin to understand how that can lead to patterns that lead us to isolation that lead us to a brokenness with our fellow man. 
And we find our connection in professional surfing, in modeling, in school, in whatever. And, and that's so many people, but not realizing that um, some of us chose drugs, alcohol, sex, but that was just our thing to connect. That was the thing that we were meant to have yeah. connection. Mm -hmm. We just chose something broken to connect with. Yeah. And <clears throat> for me, like to help people understand, like this is, you know, playing out in lives that we don't even realize. Yeah. Yeah. We can't see these signs. Mm -hmm. And so many people that have been, you know, sexually abused or been through trauma as children. They live a life of sometimes I, I've some men that I work with that are sober, but they're still living in these patterns of just it's not they're not free. You know, they're they're miserable. They can't own responsibility. They, you know, constantly project rather than internalize and, and change um, all things to protect themselves because their sexual abuse is just more than they can actually let go of and heal from. They've acknowledged it, but that wasn't enough. And seeing these patterns has been something that, like, recently makes me just so driven to want to bring this to the world, more awareness to this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a, a beautiful thing with where you are right now in your own life. I appreciate that. And it's, it's I think that it, and it's nuanced, right? Because we can accomplish a lot of great things out of it. It, it basically, we could almost look at it as like a force, right? You can be incredibly driven and you can go accomplish things. And I just always ask myself, okay, well, what's driving that person? What's motivating them? Absolutely, dude. Because I think, you know, you can, you can, I could, I love being a professional athlete. I enjoyed uh, modeling and it was a great, it was a great source of income and I worked with some great people. Um, I love academics and all that. So a lot of there's, there's good in the bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, there, and so I say that because it's like, it's, it is nuanced in how this stuff plays out. Um, but I think when it comes to, um, addiction and I think the part that I didn't understand also when it comes to how sexual abuse plays out in my life is the sense of self-harm. Yeah. And how we, how, because we're, we're confused about what happened in our lives and we don't know how, I didn't know how to talk about it. And, and yet I had to cope with the pain. Um, and I had to find a way to be able to, um, to self-medicate in a way. And I think that there's, there's a lot of, a lot of our stories, a lot of my story is a sort of hidden side where I was actually in ways punishing myself because I didn't know how to be honest, man. I didn't know how to actually say to someone, this happened to me, and I don't know what to do with that truth, but I need to say it because I'm tired of carrying it, and I'm tired of it shaping my life. And and I think that, the, the and to go back, it's like that was the unexpected benefit of me actually beginning to, to you know, to becoming um, a Christian. In the most unexpected way. Right. And I think it, it allowed me to see, man, I didn't realize I was punishing myself. You know, I didn't realize that, that, that behind that sort of motivation tied back to my abuse was, was addiction. And it was me coping with things. Yeah. And instead of going to someone and talking and having a conversation like this, I was isolating myself and, and figuring ways to, to punish myself. Sure. 
and I don't have you is is that played out in your story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the questions that we need to start asking people is not why the problem or why the choices you make, but where the pain come from? Yeah, because pain is what's motivating most of what people are doing that is negative in their life. And so we need to recognize that like, that's the question that we're just not asking why the pain Mm -hmm. and you see it play out. You know, I once had a doctor say to me like a a regular MD come in and be like, Oh, all the tattoos, you hate yourself. Mm. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? I don't even know you. Yeah. But I went back and started thinking about it. And like the tattoos did start out of hating myself. I just wanted the pain yeah. that comes with it. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm like, wow, he was right. Could have said it. Used a little more tact yeah, in how exactly. he said it. Um, yeah. but and, and, you know, and since I, I do still get tattoos, but now it's more about telling the story of my life. But in the originally, it was about hating myself. Yeah. And so it absolutely plays out in the things that we do. Um, even like the people I just, I was mentioning that I've been working with for a long time. They ruin relationship after relationship. And it's like, it's self-sabotage because there's hatred for themselves, but they're not to the point where they can see that it's only seeing the other people. And it's just like, you would think of new ways to harm yourself, but you're not thinking harm yourself. You're thinking what's my next venture or the next thing I need to focus on or whatever, not realizing it's a harmful thing. Mm -hmm. It just is camouflaged by being something else. And, and so that self harm, man, I love that you brought that up. It is so, it is so true that that is what we do to ourselves. Yeah. And it's, and it's for me, I think when it came to that, it, it, it was nuanced. I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. It. I didn't understand why am I choosing this particular behavior instead of going to someone and having an honest conversation about the fact that I'm hurting. Yeah. I'm hurting. I have a deep and profound wound and I, and I need to express that to a fellow human and have them interact with that and begin to have the truth come forward absolutely to bring freedom to set me free from this um i didn't understand that i was choosing these behaviors and i was trying to basically you know self-medicate and and through through this and i didn't have that skill set to have a conversation around this stuff that you mentioned you you didn't talk about this until you're no i didn't talk about till my 30s and i just i say that to anyone who's out there is that what we're talking about here when it comes to when it comes to Christianity is not actually something new. When you look at the New Testament, and I just I just challenge anyone out there who hasn't read the New Testament to even even the gospels, you're gonna see what we're talking about here yeah. where, where Jesus is interacting with people who the community does not know what to do with. And they're often in ways they are sort of outcasts in a community. Right. And some of them are even it, it seems to say the New Testament seems to say they're actually harming themselves. And when they have an interaction with Jesus, it's like, right. So what is it about interacting with the creator of the universe when he's standing in front of you that gives you permission to heal yeah. and, to, and to have hope and, and to begin to, to feel a sense of acceptance where you can begin to have conversations around parts yeah. of your story that you never had the courage to talk about. And I think that for both of us, that's, that's why we're here today. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's the center of it. And I think that, so when it comes to, if, if there's someone out there who struggles with this, I just, you know, you know, reach out to someone like yourself, you know, and, and, and just to begin to have these conversations because I wish, I wish yeah. if I could go back, 
I would have had this conversation at a younger age. Well, yeah, and it, it and it goes really both ways. If you're somebody that's listening that um, does not have this as part of your experience, yeah. then don't be afraid to be the person who listens because it. Listen, we don't all need psychiatrists or counselors. We need another human being. I, I shared with somebody today, I'm like, what do you think the power of confession is? We've made it into this sin issue where you did something wrong, you need to confess it and tell somebody so they can make you feel really horrible about it. First off, Jesus already died on the cross for all our sins 2,000 years ago, so there is nothing that we need to be forgiven for. The confession is the act of letting go of what has held us in bondage. It is the ability to sit here, two, two Christian brothers or Christian sisters or whatever dynamic you have the going on, but the role of confessor, confess e is simply being there for each other. It is hearing the words of I've went through this. And, and, and in, you know, scripture says where two are gathered, two or more are gathered, then he is there. And so the presence of Jesus Christ, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the one who has been with us through everything, who is in all things, who, who said before the foundations of the world that I call you perfect, holy, and blameless, is in your midst. And it is in this act of with love and acceptance that we can hear someone's story and, and just be present. And I say that I call them Garden of Gethsemane moments. Jesus says, come and pray with me in the Garden of Gethsemane. But let's be honest, Jesus didn't need anybody there to pray with him. He, he says, you can't stay awake. And did he really need them to stay awake? Was it like they were going to change what was to be the future of the world? No. So why, 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 why did Jesus be like, I need you here with me, and why can't you stay awake, and why did it fluster him? Because even Jesus, even Jesus needed someone to share his pain with. He needed to know in that moment he was not alone, that he could look into the eyes of his brothers, because right before this is when he says, I used to call you servants, and I no longer do. I call you my friends, because I've told you everything that the Father has told me. Everything. He says everything. And, and, and it's like this powerful moment of being like, as my friends, will you endure this pain with me? Will you sit and look me in the eye and say, you are not alone? He didn't need them to be like, yeah, we'll change this. Well, when the guards show up, this is what we're going to do. No, stay awake. Let me know I'm not alone. Because interestingly enough, he, well, Eli, Eli, Sabatini, when he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He knew he was going to be alone in that moment, and he didn't need to be. There was those around him that could be with him. And so we have to look at, I look at that scripture and I say, all we have to do is just be present and say, I'm so sorry you went through that. And I can't change that but I'll be here with you through whatever we need to do to get better. And, and that's it. You don't need answers. In fact, please don't give any answers. Don't search. That's an American thing where we feel like, you know, silence is bad and we have to have an answer for something. And don't do that. Just, you don't have one. We don't, you know, you mentioned earlier about in apologetics being answering the, pro the question of suffering and evil in the world. It's like, that's complicated. All I know is I can tell somebody is like, yeah, you've went through some evil stuff and I can't change it. And I don't even have an answer for it. But, you know, I'm here now and, and we know the Father is with us. And so we can heal now and we can, we can walk through this together. 
And I just think there's so much power in helping people understand that the majority of the the healing stories that that we I've t- I've been through personally have not been with counselors, have not been with psychiatrists. They've been with just broken people sharing in life's brokenness together. Because at the end of it, we need connection. We need to know we're not alone. And we need to know our pain matters. It, it, it matters. It's like it happened. Yeah. I'm not going to deny your pain. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is acknowledge it and let it go. And if you want me to help you with that, we can we can do that together. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and I think it's I think that uh when it comes to letting go of it. Yeah. Right? When it comes to healing, um there's a there's a word that I think has been dropped when it comes to the topic of sexual abuse. And correct me if I'm wrong if you think I'm wrong in this, but because of something like the Me Too movement, because we've seen this sort of layer peel back and we, see, we realize the pervasiveness of this, of this issue in, in our culture and, and we realize the issue of it in church, in the churches, right? You yeah. Know, or even church leaders. And so it's not like it's, it's, it's something that pervades all circles right now. And yeah. we're realizing the ramifications Because it's Southern it. Baptist. Right, exactly. And so... But I think that I'm I'm curious about I have a heart for the victims in this case, and so when, even going back to the to what we talked about earlier, that, that that's my heart in this, and I say that because I there's a part of of the healing process, and there's a language that we use when we talk about it, and you talk about how important it is to confess one another. Where is the concept that we often want to? There's this. There's this verse um, written that says, um, "Is it to to do justice, to love mercy?" Micah three thirty. Yeah, and walk humbly with your God. We've gotten the do justice part. Yep. Well, yeah. man. Yeah. What about the other two? Right. That's powerful. And I say that because I have found a tremendous resource that's helped me come to terms with the bitterness and anger that I felt to the to the couple that did this to me. And it came through the word forgiveness. Yeah. And and I and I say that because when I think when we're talking about these issues, we often think, well, forgiveness means, oh, well, forgive and forget. No, not at all. And, that's, and so that's not what we're talking about. Mm-mm. What we're talking about here, yes, you are to do justice in these cases. It is a loving thing to hold someone accountable for what they've done to you. That is, a, that is an act of love. Yes. And so, but I think it, when it comes to people who have who, victims of sexual abuse, there is a part that falls on our side, and that is to get us to a place to do the really, really, really hard work. The part that, that we want to fast forward through in our culture, the, the either the meeting the one-on-one and, and having someone walk through these areas of life with you or meeting with a counselor and get to the point to where we realize that, A, yes, something harmful has been done to me. And because of that, I've actually harmed others. Absolutely, yeah. 
I've yeah. harmed others. And so, and so when it comes to the relationship part, I spent the majority of my life not being able to be emotionally available to, to, to women that I particularly dated in my life. I've caused a lot of harm yeah. in yeah. people's lives because of that. And in the long list of all my other sins, that's a part of, this, of, of the damage that I've caused. And the amazing thing about the Christian worldview is when it comes to justice is that every single act, every single act will have its day in court. Mm-hmm. And the judge that will judge it is the one judge that has the access to all the truth. Right. And what that means is that when it comes to a victim is that for me, when I was sexually abused at 14, 15, 16, I pursued justice in this case. And I very quickly realized that because I wasn't 13 years old, that the statute of limitations had expired. And so if I wasn't, if I, if I didn't have an understanding of Christianity and I thought that justice was going to bring me healing, if I got it, I will never see justice in this case. I, I never will. But when we're talking about a bigger understanding of justice, where in the end, I know that actually, that, that I will be held accountable for everything I've done and they will be held accountable for everything they've done. It gave me a tremendous amount of resource to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to surrender my bitterness and angerness to you. And I can trust that to you. And you're going to move me to a place over time, over time to actually begin to feel compassion and concern for the people who did this to me that I want them to know the damage that it's caused me and know that I'm in a place that if we could have a conversation about this and you could actually admit this and you admit that what you did to me was wrong, that I, that, that I would be in a place to be reconciled to you, I'm open to that. And I would have never thought that was on the cards for anything. I could have never imagined that moment. But I had that moment. And it was a huge step in my healing process. And, and it's not right to do for every victim, all, all the different. Right. But for me, it was. And I just say that because that when it comes to this topic of sexual abuse, when it comes yeah. to having a heart for victims, which I think the God of the Bible does have, I think is also a, a step there. And that is the step of forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, whew, as you opened up a can of worms with this one. So... <laughs> Let me think of the nicest way to say this. Um, Churches have hid behind that word to allow evil, vile behavior to persist. That is a word that is triggering to so many sexual abuse survivors that I work with. I personally didn't have to go through that because mine happened at a place and the person is no longer even alive and so on and so forth. But... Man, that word is dangerous because churches get, they, you know, leaders get accused of sexually abusing people and they're like, well, you got to forgive them and why ruin their reputation? And that's not what we're talking about. And that is not what we're talking about. In case anybody's wondering, uh, absolutely not. Yeah. No. That's not what we're talking no. about. And that's, not, and that's not a Christian understanding of forgiveness either. And no, so, and no. I think that, and so, but I think that, and it, and it is, it is a triggering word and it, and and, and you're right. But just that. because it's been misused doesn't mean we don't take it back. Well, not just that, because it's like the healing that I've experienced in life to be able to get to a place to have a conversation like this. Yeah. 
was a long journey where the front end, man, like I had, this is a personal story where I had a recurring dream as I was going through counseling. And it was this dream where I was able to punish the persons, the persons who did this to me. And in that dream, I would beat them physically with my fists. But I would always stop. And I would stop at the moment that I knew if I struck them again, it would actually kill them. And it took me a long time to figure out what was going on in this dream. Why am I continuing to dream about this? And it was because I think my soul was beginning to realize even if I was able to have justice in this case, even if I was able to hold them accountable, it would never even begin to undo the damage and the pain that it's caused in my life. Yeah. And so it brought me to a place to realize that justice will never be enough. Yeah, there, there, there is no justice um, that, can, that can heal you. There is a justice that we cry out for and, and that we want to heal us, but it, it doesn't heal you. Um, and there is a process of going through um, all of the necessary steps in order to even get to where you got to, to that point. And, and let me just go backwards a bit where we, we said we need to be there for each other to, to hear each other's story. That doesn't mean that after you've heard each other and you get to a healthy place, that person doesn't go to a, a professional yeah. and, and, and go, but it just means you can, you can walk with them through that process. Yeah. It's, and it, and it's not a one-time thing. It just means don't, People shouldn't have to go through this alone. So there is, there is, you know, the, I went through a whole year long process with a counselor. Um, I still have issues that I see counselors for. So all I'm saying is we need to be there to hear each other in our moments of pain, to recognize our pain, to be in community, to be united with each other. But there is this process of healing that needs to happen that may or may not ever see the type of justice that you feel is necessary in the beginning of this yeah. journey. Yeah. But hopefully through this journey, you get to a place where the Lord will show you a type of justice that, that will give you the healing that you need, that will get you to this point. But it will always lead, be around a forgiveness of sorts, that, that true forgiveness, not kind people hide behind, yeah. but the real forgiveness from the Father. Yeah. And, and at some point, there's a forgiveness for yourself that'll be necessary. I've done a lot of inner healing work and um, Leanne Payne, who has this ministry, um, ministry of pastoral care, I've really huge fan. She's no longer with us, but her organization is still, but it's like, you know, there's three big foundations to wholeness in Christ. And it's, you know, um, self-hatred, forgiving others and forgiving ourself. And, and it is so true that we can forgive others often before we can forgive ourselves, or vice versa. Um, but both are necessary to ever be whole with, with Christ. And, and we don't often see that. Yeah. And it's, and it's, there's an element of, of, of self care in this too, that I sure. think is really important for victims to understand is that, that it's not a selfish thing to care for yourself. And so when it comes to when it comes to the work that falls on the side of a victim to begin to look out for their own character and make sure that their character is not being twisted by the anger and bitterness that they feel towards towards the perpetrator, it falls on our side to do the hard work to get to a place to be able to 
to make sure that that anger and bitterness is being directed in a way that's actually beneficial. Yeah, yeah. We Because it's a tremendous force. And so I think that, and again, forgiveness doesn't cancel justice. You know, right. forgiveness and justice walk right alongside each other. So it's a, like I said, it's a, it is a loving thing to hold someone accountable for what they've done to you. That is a loving thing to do. Um, but it does fall on the side of a victim to say, listen, if I actually don't figure out a way to guide this anger and bitterness that I feel inside of me, that even yeah. if I was able to hold a person accountable and, and punish them, the punishment would never take away the pain and the anger that I feel towards yeah. them that we have to figure out a way to guide that. And that's where I think the right understanding of Christian forgiveness and justice is really important. And I feel like it's part of the narrative that we've forgotten. And and going back to being concerned about victims, I, I just want people to, to, to begin to reconsider that part and see the importance of it. And again, it doesn't cancel justice. Right. We're supposed to hold people accountable. It's not, we're not talking about forgive and forget. We're not talking about we're burying this in the past and we're letting the person off the hook. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about here. Not at all. That's not it. And so, but it's a huge resource when it comes to healing. Yeah. Huge resource, tremendous. And it's one of the resources that I've seen and I'm concerned that it's, that it's no longer a part of the conversations because it is triggering for so many of us. Yeah. Um, and I understand that, man. I understand that. But I think that when it comes to, to the healing that needs to happen, I think it's 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 a concept that we need to revisit and and have sober understanding of what we're actually talking about when we say Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Man, I think there is you and I could sit here and talk about this for yeah. for, for days. Um but it is so man, it is just so important to bring um awareness around this topic because there are so many facets to it from understanding what is even sexual abuse to understanding how to uh, express this to others, to how to receive it from others, how to, um, you know, walk through the healing process, to forgive, to find that justice. What does all this look like? And I, I just feel like uh, you and I can have multiple, multiple conversations about this, and I hope that we do. Yeah. I really do, because um, I think we're united in, in our hearts for this, because there is just, it's beyond even just the, the abuse that people have went through that we need to to work on. It's actually the way that it has been handled by the church and by, by others for so long that needs to also be healed so we can reclaim words like forgiveness and really understand there's a biblical understanding of this word and there's a, a biblical context in which we can walk this out in order to really be whole yeah. to really become all that we were meant to be yeah. um let's let's kind of what are some what's closing thoughts um on what do you want someone to take from this conversation um before our next one what what do you think yeah i I, I want someone to be able to take away that, that there is, there is hope and there is healing for someone who has experienced something like this and that I found it in being in a personal relationship with the being who created this entire universe. And, and I think that as much 
baggage that might be around the term Christian and Christianity in our culture that we live in today, I hope that that they would reconsider it yeah. and that they would actually reconsider what it might mean to be in a relationship with a being that fully knows you, fully knows everything that's ever happened to you, and fully loves you. Amen. And so, the, and that those two things go together in a way. And what that does when it comes to being able to talk about the parts of our stories that you don't see on billboards and that you don't see in magazines, yeah, it actually has a tremendous power to bring freedom because we're talking about the truth. We're talking about the ultimate truth. And going back to that, it's the truth that sets you free. It's the truth that brings these parts of our stories from the darkness into the light. And that's the metaphor that we're talking about here that's used to describe Jesus and, and, and God and the idea of a supernatural power behind all of this and created all this and created us as beings and created us to be in profound relationships with one another. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's, that's my take. That's what I hope is that there's just a spark of curiosity. Yeah. Um, and there's, there is a glimmer of hope and, and, and that you can have a conversation like this. And if you think that you can never have the conversation like this, I just want to say, you know, man, you can. Yeah. And, and for me, it came on the, on the other side of making that decision. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, I think I would just, you know, add in that we're talking about relationship with the creator. And I th- almost feel like, you know, there's this, um, we're not talking about church. And so many people have associated the two together, and unfortunately, they're not. And I don't think they were ever meant to be. I think, you know, church is meant to be a place of meeting, but you're always meant to have a deeper, more profound relationship with the one who created you, the one that brings this freedom. And um, I think we drifted away from that, and it became about being accepted into the church. And then the church did stuff we didn't like, and so we left. But it's, you shouldn't pull away from the creator. And so, yeah, revisit, revisit that. Revisit the relationship with the one who created you, the one that loves you and has always been there and will always be there. Never leave you, never forsake you. And, um, and there is hope. Absolutely, there is hope. Um, I never thought that I would be where I'm at today given the things that I've been through, the things I've done, and yet, I sit and sit here across from an amazing individual like yourself, and hopefully we can make a difference in the world for others. Amen. And well, thank you so much, brother. This has been great. I look thank forward. You. Look forward to the next one, man. Yeah. Uh, we better strap in. <laughs> <laughs> Bring some food next time. Bring yeah. some food next time. Yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning in.